I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 68, The Death of Sargon II. Previously, on the Fan of History, Assyria attacked Babylonia, and Sargon II of Assyria claimed the throne of Babylon for himself. Wow. That's a bold move there, Dan. Yeah, but it's a move that TP3 also did before him, so it's kind of established like a way to try to handle Babylon. Right. Uh, so the king of this week is Sargon II, of course. It's 707 BC, and we have six years left of our narrative. Just six years left. Out of 300, so we're getting close to the end. Wow. Two more episodes <laughs> after this one. Crazy. Uh, Sargon has ruled Assyria since 722 BC, maybe eight episodes, I'm not sure exactly. His campaigns have been successful. Uh, he started out with everybody revolting, and now he has settled that. He had three great arch enemies. Uh, one of them is dead and replaced with his son. That's Argishti II of Urartu. Uh, it was the Chaldean Merodach Baladan of Bichakin and King Maidas of Phrygia. So where are they now? When Sargon is victorious, well, Merodach Baladan is in exile in Elam. He ruled as king in Babylonia for 12 years and did really good. But now he is in exile and the Elamite king is not too happy about that, I think. But he, he keeps Merodach Baladan around. Uh, the Bichakin in the Sealand are still there and they're still loyal to Merodach Baladan. Should he return? <laughs> And he wants to return. He wants the throne of Babylonia back. And, spoiler, he will return. 
King Midas uh, changed his tune and became became become friend became friends with Sargon. He's paying tribute to Sargon, and he is fully occupied with fighting for Phrygia's life against the Cimmerian invasion, which is going on in full force in the mountains in Phrygia. And uh, poor Argishti is in a similar situation, so Urartu is no threat. And with this situation, after three years in Babylon, Sargon II finally returns to Assyria. Of course, it's getting harder and harder to rule Assyria from Babylon. (laughs) But that's not the reason he's returning. He's returning to check out his new capital that he ordered so long ago. Is it finally built? Almost. Almost. The project has been going on for 10 years. Uh, that capital is, of course, Dur Sharukin, which means Fort Sargon. <laughs> Today, this is Korsabad. And like all Assyrian capitals, is in the north of Iraq. Um, my main source, Cambridge Ancient History, talks a lot about Sargon the Builder. And I don't really buy this. I think Sargon is the warrior. He has been out on campaign all the time. And the one who has realized his building projects is, of course, his son, Sennacherib. But uh, this is what uh, Cambridge Ancient History says. As a builder, Sargon II is virtually unparalleled, for he created a totally new Assyrian city, Dur Sharukin, or Korsabad. And uh, yeah, he has not seen very much of the city. <laughs> and the main reason for building the city was to get away from the nobility who were hanging around in the old capital. <laughs> and in the really old capital, Asher. So he built like a no- noble free city <laughs> that he could rule from. So he didn't have to deal with all the politics. But I think this is all Sennacherib. Sennacherib has been administrating... Uh, all of Assyria building this capital, and Dad has just been away fighting. But this, it worked splendidly. Sennacherib has done a great job, and Sargon could focus on the war. And um, not coming close to the real capital, Kala, was probably a good move by Sargon. He could never be assassinated or even have to face nobles coming to complain. They had to go to his war camps to complain, and that was probably much <laughs> less fun for them. Oh, yeah. Not a lot of luxury happening in a war camp. <laughs> I, I'm looking for opportunities to mention Tiglath Peleser III, as he is my favorite king. And there is a small possibility that this new capital was an idea from Tiglath Peleser III that he never had the time to realize. So let's look at Dur Sharukin. It's located 25 kilometers north of Nineveh. And Nineveh, Asher, and one other place I forget right now are like the three super ancient cities of the Assyrians. They've been around for 2,000 years almost at this point. Uh, So that's the heartland with the old capital Asher. And um, 25 kilometers north is not very far from this place. It has sort of the same strategic advantages that the old capitals had. It's in the foothills of the Jebel Maklub, uh, Musri. It's a strat- it is a strategic, strategic location if you want to fight in the north. 
So you're kind of closer to the north. Um, the central structure in Durusharukin is the palace. And the walls of the palace, which is huge, uh, were lined with huge uh, stone slabs on which you could read all about Sargon's conquests and adventures. And uh, as I mentioned before, I did this 45 minute video on YouTube where I read Sargon's inscription. So you can hear Sargon's full story in his own words. And it's pretty brilliant compared to all the other Assyrian kings as he breaks with the traditional formats that makes Assyrian inscriptions boring and <laughs> gives it a very personal touch. So check that out on the Final History YouTube channel. In 707 BC, they have a splendid ceremony in Durusharukin. They bring the Assyrian gods inside. Uh, they make sacrifices to the gods. And when I say Assyrian gods, I probably mean Asher and uh, all the Babylonian gods that they have hijacked. Uh, the kings, the king, his nobles, and the princes of all lands sit down to a magnificent feast. But no matter how Sargon tries to spin this, it's nowhere near the greatest party of all time that we covered before by Ashurnasirpal II. Uh, there are several important buildings made in this new capital. We have shrines to a lot of Babylonian gods. <laughs> Ea, Sin, Ningal, Shamash, Nabu, Adad, Ninurta, and the Sibiti. There is a splendid residence for Sin Aka Ushur. That's uh, a brother of Sargon, the chief vizier. We mentioned him briefly before. He was helping out... Uh, he was helping Sennacherib ruling the land. A wall with eight gates are built around the city. And people from conquered areas are forced to become citizens of the new capital. Mm, the spirit of Ashurnasirpal. Ashurnasirpal's <laughs> uh, capital has been the capital for from 879 to 707 BC. That's 172 years. Uh, now I hear an echo of myself. Hmm. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, uh, I think I fixed it. Shouldn't okay. be echoing anymore. Uh, but this city, the new city of Durcharukin, will not have as glorious a history as Kala has had. It will not be the capital for 172 years because disaster will hit Durcharukin. Very soon. Oh boy. Um, okay, uh, some uh, fun fact about Sargon II. Okay. He likes to hunt, as any good Assyrian king does. But he is—he likes to hunt small creatures. He likes to hunt birds and rabbits. Not lions. No. And Ashurnasipal II would think that he was a wimp. All right. He should be out there with bare hands. Grabbing but I think lions. the reason uh, the reason he doesn't hunt lions is that his uh, predecessor uh, have exterminated the Mesopotamian lion. Oh, yeah. That would make sense. So this wild lion hunts just killed every lion. Lions have a hard time hiding from Assyrians with bows. <laughs> 
Uh, Sargon II also built a lot of stuff outside of his new city. He refurbished the, te- the main temple, the Ashara, the Temple of Asher, at Asher. That was refurbished. He restored the processional way to the forecourt of the Ashara. He repaired the Sin Shamash Temple at Asher. Uh, and the Temple of, of Nabu at Nineveh was reconstructed. And Sargon renamed the Temple of Nabu to the Temple of Nabu and Marduk. And this is probably a political move proving that he is truly the king of Babylon. And maybe this gives him a possibility to actually worship Marduk without going to Babylon. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, the foundation of the Northwest Palace in Kala. The Northwest Palace is Ashurnasipal II's great palace. Uh, it was in bad condition and Sargon restored it. So those were the building projects of Sargon II. In 706, we get an interesting thing in Babylon. We get the first mention of the, nob- uh, of the house Igibi. And later Babylonian history will be full with these houses. Powerful houses of families that work together to become a power factor in Babylon. But this is the very first mention of House Igibi, and they will be important in Babylon. It's a, it's a merchant family from the start. They are very wealthy, and they will grow really powerful. They are the oldest of the Babylonian trading houses, and we have recovered their archives. We have 1,700 clay tablets covering the years 600 to 482 BC. Wow. So way, way, yeah, that's, 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 that's quite a impressive. Lot. Yeah. Yeah, so we have a great understanding of Babylonian economy. And knowing the Babylonians, uh, it wasn't very different in 707 BC from 600 BC, I would say. So in these clay tablets, you could read about their trade in fields, houses, and slaves, their banking operations. Uh, They accept deposits, they pay debts of their clients, they finance and found commercial enterprises, and they also put important members of the house in the king's service. So you get notifications in these clay tablets when someone from House Egibi is a judge for the king, for example. So House Gibi will become important in Babylonian history later. And here is something else that will become super important later. In 705 BC, someone named, I will butcher this pronunciation, <laughs> Akamines, would you say that? Yeah, I was thinking, the way I, the way I look at it, yeah is exactly said Achaemenes or Achaemenes. The, 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 the Persians get a king and his name is Achaemenes and the later Persian Empire Cyrus the Great will be called the Achaemenid Empire. So this is the first of the great line of Persian kings. But we don't know anything about Achaemenes' life or his actions. And I have a quote here. Um, 
it is quite possible that Achaemenes was only the mythical ancestor of the Persian royal house. But if Achaemenes was an historical person, he should have lived at the end of the 8th and the first quarter of the 7th century BC. Uh, we get Darius I, the king of Persia, talking about him, and we got Herodotus talking about him. And he's supposed to rule the Persians between 75 to 6, uh, 75 BC. But my first question is, where is this Persian kingdom? Because <laughs> the Persians don't really have a kingdom. They are in the mountains, in Iran. Um, they are probably ruled by the Medes or Elam. But I think, if, if I would guess, I would say they were a vassal of the Medes. And it's it's very possible that Darius I is just lying. Normally Persians don't lie except if they are Darius I. So he could make anything up here. <laughs> and everybody would believe him because Persians just do not lie. They are religiously forbidden to lie. And very few break this. And one of the few that break this is just is exactly Darius I. <laughs> But I wanted to mention the very, very early beginnings of the Persian kingdom, if there indeed was such a beginning in 705 BC. Also in 705 BC, there is trouble in Tabal. Tabal is to the northwest in the Neo-Syrian Empire. This is the mountains in Turkey. And there is some sort of serious disorder in Tabal, maybe. It's a rebellion. There is some evidence for this. Maybe the Cimmerians invade Tabal. That's a very common idea. I think that's the main theory of what is going on in Tabal in 705 BC. But I'm going to argue that it probably wasn't the Cimmerians. But Sargon II goes to Tabal personally, again, with the Royal Assyrian Army. It's just another campaign for Sargon II. But we do not have the details for this campaign except for one line of four words. So we have an Assyrian inscription telling us the following four words. Camp lost, king killed. That's, that's ominous. <laughs> yes. So thus dies Sargon II, the great king of Assyria. His corpse is never covered and could not be properly buried. And this has never happened before. Not for 2,000 years has an Assyrian king died on the battlefield, which is remarkable, to right. say the least. They, they go on campaigns every year. Yes, and I assume the Assyrian king stays in the back and they win most wars, but even when they lose, the king somehow survives. Maybe because he isn't there and he says he, he, says he was. <laughs> but this time, Sargon is in the battle and he dies. And this is completely unthinkable to the Assyrians. The Assyrians do not even realize that this could happen. It's been so long and the king has been safe. And Sargon II, one of the greatest kings they ever had, dies on the battlefield. Crazy. So, did the Cimmerians really kill him? They're, they get the blame. And we know the Cimmerians were sort of in the neighborhood 
when they were on the other side of the mountains fighting Urartu and Phrygia. So Tabal is it's pretty hard to get to. They would have to go be very successful in their fight against Urartu or Phrygia, but maybe they were. And maybe they were very mobile and could raid down to Tabal. But I am starting to think that Sargon II was killed by somebody else, and that it is convenient to blame the Cimmerians to restore political order, because political order now goes out the window and the Assyrian sources go silent. And we know that how terrible that is. Nothing good comes of that for the whole area. There is no more mention of 707 and 706 BC, and we actually don't even have an Assyrian king for 706 BC. But we are not sure what happened here. But let's talk a little more about Sargon II when we can. So what did he do? I think he's one of the truly great Assyrian kings. He got dealt a lousy hand, probably by his own rebellion. He took, he got rid of Shalmaneser and took the empire Tiglath-Pileser III. He suffered all these rebellions. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He fought all those years to restore the empire, but he did restore it. He had the full empire of Tiglath-Pileser III, and it was even a little bigger than Tiglath-Pileser's empire at the end. So the reigns of Tipitri and Sargon was truly a burst of glory. And the empire is stronger than it ever was, at least until the sources go silent. The Assyrians are now truly feared and well-known even far from Assyria. And it's not the end of the empire. The empire will get even bigger. But I think the thing that struck me most with Sargon II was that he was so energetic. With Sennacherib in position to do all the boring stuff, Sargon could go out fighting all the time, and that's what he loved. So, farewell, Sargon. I feel like we should do some kind of salute, but I don't know what. (laughs) (laughs) All hail Sargon II. Hail. Hail Sargon. Um, So we have no idea what happens in 706 BC. But in 705 BC, 
this is so strange because Sargon had obviously set up Sennacherib to become the king. And Sennacherib becomes the king in 705 BC. So it takes one to two years to stabilize. And we don't know why. There must have been considerable confusion in Assyria. And um, there are actually other um, notes, other Assyrian writing we have that says that Sennacherib became the king in 704 BC. And another one says that he became the king in 703 BC. That would be four years of civil disorder. And the chronology of Sennacherib is very problematic. We, the campaigns, because they are campaigns of Sennacherib, they are not dated by eponyms as they have been all the time. They are numbered. So Sennacherib says, on my seventh campaign, I did this. But he doesn't tell us when that happened. Only that it was the seventh campaign. And he will reign for more than 12 years. So we don't know <laughs> when his campaigns happen. We just have to try to deduce when it happened from other sources and other events he mentions and stuff. But it gets a lot more complicated. Sargon's reign was very clear when things happen, but here that disappears. And uh, the actual number of campaigns is also uh, strange because Sennacherib only speaks of eight campaigns, but he gives us details for 12. <laughs> Which is strange, right? Yeah, that's that's weird. <laughs> it's like you and can't keep stories straight. No, um, that's of course because records are lost. The Epinome Chronicle itself, the, the chronicle that mentions just in the year of blah, 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 this happened, it's missing. We don't have the Epinome Chronicle for the beginning of Sennacherib's reign. And this means that uh, what we will talk about in two episodes, the destruction of Sennacherib, maybe even didn't happen in 71 BC. But I will talk about that a lot in the upcoming episode. And now, poor Sennacherib, he has to do something to reorganize the realm, take it over. It takes a while for him to become king. And we don't know why, but we know that the death of his father in battle really haunts him. The Assyrians are very superstitious. They look for omens from the gods. And is there an omen worse than this? The first Assyrian king in forever <laughs> dies in battle. How do you interpret that? Yeah, the, the gods are not happy with you. So Sennacherib must ask himself, what terrible sin did Sargon commit against the gods to deserve such a fate? And he is really troubled by this. Sennacherib sits down and thinks hard about this. And he takes certain steps. He never mentions his great father ever again. Sargon is never mentioned in any inscription by Sennacherib. So it is like Sennacherib fears Sargon's name. He thinks that Sargon's name is an offense to the gods. And this is, this is such a big change. It seems that he had a good relationship to his father before he died in battle. Right, he, they, they seem to have a very harmonious relationship. Yes, and Assyrian kings love to brag about their great fathers. 
But Sennacherib never ever mentioned Sargon ever again. And I think that this death in battle you know, is on Sennacherib's mind always. He now realizes then that he too is mortal if he goes out and fight. And uh, yeah, he, he's just brooding on this question for the rest of his life. And he decides here, probably in 705 BC, maybe later then, to make, take another giant step to appease the gods and make the gods forget about his father. He abandons the new capital. Dur-Sharukin almost finished. They already had the party. They built the temples. They built this enormous palace. But Sennacherib just walks away from it. And it's never finished. It's abandoned. Wow. And eventually it just disappears below the sands, and we have found the ruins of Khorsabad or of Dursharukin. But it is never the working capital of Assyria. So very short story for <laughs> poor Dursharukin. <laughs> so you would think that uh, Sennacherib would then go back to Kala mm -hmm. and keep that as the capital, but... If we think that, we forget the one biggest trait in Sennacherib. Sennacherib is a builder. He has had a lot of fun building Dursherukin. So he wants to make changes. And he chooses yet another capital, the fourth capital for Assyria. But he doesn't have the time to build this city from scratch. So he takes one of the three ancient cities... He takes Nineveh itself, 25 kilometers south of Dursharukin. Nineveh is this ancient city. It has dark, narrow alleys winding through a maze of buildings. It's uh, like poor city planning has been going on for thousands of years. <laughs> and Sennacherib says, this will be our capital. There are two important temples in Nineveh at this time. It's the Temple of Asher and the Temple of the New Year, where the king is supposed to do uh, rituals. But the Temple of the New Year has fallen into ruins, and the Assyrian kings hasn't done the New Year rituals if he hasn't been a uh, king of Babylon, and then he did it in the Temple of Marduk in Babylon. But Sennacherib uh, starts building stuff. And he clears out these dark, narrow alleys. He tears things down. He expands the size of the city. And already in 703, the Nineveh has uh, grown immensely. He widens the squares and he builds a gigantic royal road uh, lined with stele. He rebuilds the Temple of the New Year in Nineveh. He reintroduces the ceremony, thinking that maybe it was this fact that we forgot about this ceremony that made the gods kill Sargon. He removes any references to Marduk in the Assyrian temples and replaces it with Asher. Maybe he thinks that Sargon's fascination for Marduk is what, uh, what made Asher kill him. The Asher temple gets all the attention. It's restored, it's made even more beautiful. Uh, Sennacherib constructs city defenses, new city defenses for Nineveh. 
and including a moat and a gigantic city wall with 18 gates. This is an enormous building project, and it's just right after they finished the enormous building project in uh, Durshahrukin. And he names these 18 gates. Each gate is named after God. And now the new Nineveh starts to look suspiciously like Babylon. So I think Sennacherib is build, rebuilding Babylon in the north. And you notice that TP3 and Sargon, they were pretty fascinated with Babylon. They were both kings in Babylon. Mm -hmm. They lived in Babylon. They liked Marduk. There is none of that in Sennacherib. I think he even fears Marduk, that he's like, I can't do what my dad did, because then I too will be killed by the gods. So he is making everything very Assyrian and less Babylonian. He builds a new fortress in Nineveh, and he's modeling this after Kar Shalmaneser, the great fortress that Shalmaneser built in the west. Uh, the laborers are still around, right? They had all these slave laborers for Durshahrukin, so he just moves them over to Nineveh and starts working. <laughs> and this becomes the greatest capital of the Neo-Syrian Empire. When Sennacherib is done with Nineveh, it's bigger, it's better, and it will remain the capital until the bitter end of Assyria. Uh, there are massive irrigation works in Nineveh. An artificial marsh is created. There is swampland created in order to recreate the southern marshes, the sea land of Babylonia. So he moves in animals from the south of Babylonia. Flora and fauna, it's like uh, a park. It's the sea land park, pretty much. <laughs> wow. He builds a great palace for his crown prince. And then he builds the big, big palace for himself. <laughs> and this palace is the biggest palace an Assyrian king has ever built. And it's named the Palace Without a Rival. It has a park, it has artificial irrigation, so there's running water in it. And it's Sennacherib's enormous palace. He tears down an old palace in Nineveh, builds a huge terrace, and builds the whole palace on that terrace. It stands like above the city. He decorates it with all manners of exotic woods, stones, metals, and ivory. A large, uh, lo a large number of sculptures in the round, including bull colossi, something which Sennacherib is fascinated with, and reliefs then depicting all the deeds of the great Assyrian kings, but not Sargon. Um, and much of this palace has been excavated. It's called the Southwest Palace by archaeologists when they started out in Nineveh. And at that point, we didn't know who built it and stuff. This was in the 19th century. But now we know for sure that this gigantic palace is built by Sennacherib. He, he loved to create parks. And there's a large park be, beside the palace filled with imported herbs, fruit trees, and even small garden plots for the citizens of Nineveh, where they can make vegetables and stuff. And it is similar in size to Windsor Castle in England, which is a pretty big castle. 
And that's, of course, is very cool that Sennacherib builds the biggest palace ever <laughs> in Assyria. <laughs> but there's one other thing that he maybe builds, and this is somewhat controversial. Huh. He builds the Hanging Gardens. Really? Yeah, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Right. And I'm going to make the case that these Hanging Gardens were built by Sennacherib in Nineveh, and that there were never any Hanging Gardens in Babylon. Really? Yes. Um, So, let's look at the evidence for this then. There are no contemporary texts in Babylon mentioning any hanging gardens, and we have a lot of texts from Babylon. Mm-hmm. And if you have this, one of the seven wonders in, of the world in your city, would you not talk about it? And we, we kind of know a lot about Babylon's city plan, and there is like no spot for the gardens. Uh, Alexander the Great comes to Babylon. He doesn't see any hanging gardens. This is nobody talks about these amazing hanging gardens in Babylon. So then you have to start to ask yourself, why would anybody think that the hanging gardens are in Babylon? Because there are references to the hanging gardens in Nineveh. But there's a Babylonian priest named Berossus, in 290 BC, in the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Great, he writes about the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. But still nobody has seen these gardens. He just writes about them. So the question then is, why don't people know that these gardens were in Nineveh? Because Sennacherib's when we look at Sennacherib's documents, the things we have from Sennacherib, this is, it's pretty clear that he built these gardens. There is an archaeological record of uh, the gardens. There is a, a researcher named Stephanie Delli. She has uh, a big treatise on the, you can find it on the, on the web, uh, where she makes the argument that the hanging gardens were in Nineveh. So then you have to Really, why, why don't people know this? And I think there is a very clear reason that they don't know it, because when Xenophon passes Nineveh 200 years after the fall of the Neo-Syrian Empire, he has no idea who lived there and who built these walls that still stand, because Nineveh will be almost completely destroyed in 612 BC. And the Assyrian records will be destroyed. We, we found the Assyrian records anyway because they were hidden under the sand. But Nineveh and everything in it will be wiped away in 612 BC. So the Hanging Gardens were destroyed at the same time. And then forgotten. But today we can be fairly sure that the Hanging Gardens were actually in Nineveh. And they were built by Sennacherib. And please, please hate me for this on, <laughs> uh, on our Facebook page, Fan of History, or on the Fan of History YouTube channel. But the, the evidence seems pretty clear for to me. Right. There is actual evidence of hanging gardens in Nineveh, 
but no actual evidence of them being ever in Babylon. Yes, but okay. in uh, when they made this list of the seven wonders of the ancient world, nobody knew what Nineveh was. Right. That's funny. You know, I have seen how many pictures I have seen of a giant tower in Babylon covered in gardens. <laughs> that seems inconvenient. <laughs> yes. It would be so dark on the inside. Yeah, imagine the moisture problems oh in the God. tower. Everything would mold, like, instantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, birds nesting everywhere in the tower. And, oh, uh, it would, yeah, it would it'd be pretty awful, unless you were a bird. That seems like an artist's uh, impression, like, oh, there's the Tower of Babel and the Hanging Gardens. And the Hanging One thing. Yeah. I've only got one canvas. We're going to put it all on one canvas here. Yeah. Uh, wow. So I guess that's it for this episode. Yeah. Rest in peace, Sargon II. We we hardly knew you, Sargon II. We knew him better than we know a lot of the Assyrian kings. Still true. But we will get to learn to know Sennacherib even more. Amazing. All right. Next episode, there's going to be a revolt in Babylon. What? They never revolted before, did they? It's, hey, it's about to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and Sennacherib will have to decide what to do about this Babylonian problem. So, please don't forget our patron, patreon.com slash fan of history also give us a review on itunes or stitcher or wherever you go to write your reviews or however you consume our content please drop us a line any line we'd love to hear from you also youtube.com fan of history subscribe like and share all right so for this week i am brennan and i'm dan and this has been Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.